again. Happy New Year. We're not here last week. Had our anniversary. Chris and I have our anniversary on the 30th of December, so it's usually a nice little time at the end of the year for us to to get away, although that didn't really happen much um, as we had planned it last time. But we were glad that Dick was able to fill in last week. Glad to hear he sounds like Alistair Begg. Maybe we need to hear more of Dick than me. But um, we're, I'm thankful for faithful brothers in the church that can step in, and it's always uh, good. I have to get Dick in six, the six months he's here, right? So I don't have him in the summertime and in the fall. i got to use him when he's here. So it's always a blessing when he can come and share uh, the word with us. I, uh, I mentioned, what I'm going to say here at the beginning is going to be very similar to what I said Wednesday night. So if you're here Wednesday night, just uh, receive it again as an encouragement. Um, but I, I like to take this time of year, the, the new year, as a time for us, to, or at least in, in my own personal life, to assess just where I am, right? Where have, I, where have I been? What's happened up to this point? Where am I now? Where am I going? Where, I, where do I want to go? Because sometimes those things aren't the same, right? The trajectory seems to be going one way, but I really want to go over here. So I need to kind of bring those things uh, back in line. And so it's a good time to evaluate, kind of think through those questions. And it's always a good time to kind of go back to the fundamentals, right? I think of an athletic principle, right? When you have a team, an athletic team, when they are working and they're growing and they're progressing, the coaches like to periodically go back to the fundamentals, right? No matter how good you are, no matter how advanced you are, uh, sometimes it's good just to go back and reemphasize those things that are foundational for one's progress in that particular sport. So if you're a quarterback, even if you're a good quarterback, sometimes because you are so good and you're depend- you kind of begin to rely upon how good you are, you don't consider those fundamental things as important as maybe you should. And, and when things start to slip, you need to go back to those fundamentals. And so I think that's an important principle, not just for athletics, but for our lives. Generally, it's good for businesses, for businesses to kind of evaluate and recalibrate. And I think it's important also for churches. And so at the beginning of this new year, I think it would be helpful for us as a church to return to the fundamentals of what it means to be a church. And there's a lot of reasons for this, and some of those will come out as we go through this over the next couple of months. But... I believe that we are living in a time of an ecclesiological downgrade. In other words, there's a de-emphasis on the local church and the importance of the local church, and there's a devaluing of the importance of the local church. We live in a culture that emphasizes that Western individualism, that American rugged spirit, right? The Marlboro Man. I am the captain of my fate and the master of my soul. I can do it on my own. I can be my own person. I can chart my own course. We tend to live in a culture that emphasizes that Western individualism as a core value to the neglect of communities of any kind, especially churches, church communities. Our culture today in this strange time in which we are living, our culture prefers to live by fear instead of faith. And this is perhaps the most difficult period of our lifetimes, what we've gone through the last couple of years and people capitulating to fear as opposed to living according to faith. And so for these reasons and many more, we need the local church. And I'm speaking particularly to this local church, Trinity Community Church. We need this church. We need one another. We need our church community. We need a healthy and faithful and vibrant church. We need to be reminded of God's purposes for the church. 
We need to be reminded of God's plan for the church. And so for the next couple of months, we're going to study ecclesiology. It's a big, fancy word that systematic theologians have come up with to describe the doctrine of the church. It's based, the, the, the etymology of it is ecclesiology. The L-O-G-Y part comes from logos, a Greek word meaning to study, a study of, consideration of. Ecclesia is the Greek word that's normally translated as church. So ecclesiology just simply is the study of the doctrine of the church. What do we believe about the church? What does the Bible say about the church? And even more importantly, if the Bible says something about the church, how do we apply it to our own lives, both corporately as a church, but also individually as a member of the church? And so what I'm going to be saying over the next couple of months, especially today, is not going to be anything new. Right? A lot of what we're going to say here are things that we already know because especially if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've studied the doctrine of the church. We go through it in our membership class and talk about the essentials of the faith. It's our, in our statement of faith. It's, it's an important part of what it means to be a Christian. What do we believe about the church? So there's nothing here that is new or groundbreaking, but I pray that these are familiar reminders that reinforce what we already know, strengthen what is become weak, and reinvigorate what has waned. I also, in tandem with this sermon series, um, I want to just share that there is a free book that's been provided to our church by Crossway Publishers called Rediscover Church, Why the Body of Christ is Essential. Won't get into all that now, but it's just a supplement to what I'm going to be preaching on. I'm not going to tie my sermons to the book, but if you want a copy of the book, it's on the back table back there. There's plenty of them. Uh, just grab one. It's a very easy read. There's nothing... They're super theological in it. You'll be able to understand. It's very practical, brings essential, important information about the church to light, but also provides some, some examples, illustrations from the lives of the authors that I think may be helpful as we go through this together. So today I want to begin with an overview and ask just a simple question, what is a church? That's the question under consideration today as we consider this overview of this study of the church. What is a church? And I will admit that I feel a lot like Dick did last week. It feels a little bit strange not to tell you, open your Bibles too. Because there's no specific passage we're going to be working from this morning. There's going to be a lot of verses, a lot of, of, of passages that we'll look at. I've got them all in the overhead this morning. You can see as we work through them today. But there's no particular passage that we're going to be looking at under our consideration. We're going to be considering the totality of what the New Testament says about the church. So let's begin trying to answer that question, what is a church? I think the best place to start is with the Greek word ecclesia, or ecclesia, depends on how uh, you pronounce it, ecclesia or ecclesia. Now in the New Testament, ecclesia, ecclesia, is normally translated as Church. Whenever you see the word church in Scripture, the word behind it is typically ecclesia. But an ecclesia is literally an assembly or a gathering. If I could emphasize some aspect of this here, it's the corporate nature of the church. It's, the church is a corporate body, a corporate entity. In ancient Greece, we're looking at prior to the church era, the word ecclesia referred to the regular public assembly of citizens who would come together to deliberate over matters of 
the state. So you go to back to your, your world history, right? Ancient Greece, ancient Sparta. They had the, the, the members of the community come together and they would deliberate over those matters that affected the local community, the local city-state. We see that kind of usage in Acts chapter 19, verse 39. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, ecclesia, again, referring to the city's regular public meeting of its citizens. The word ecclesia is also used as a spontaneous reference, or as a reference to a spontaneous gathering of people, such as the mob riot that occurred in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, verse 32. So, the point is, is that if you were not, a, before the Christian era, not a Christian, the Greeks used this word just simply as a way of saying the assembly or the gathering together of people for a specific purpose. In Jewish culture, the word ecclesia referred to a gathering of Jews, especially for religious purposes such as worship. So, for example, we're accustomed to calling the, the gathering of Jews to worship the synagogue, right? That's typically the word that we use. But the word ecclesia was a synonym. Sometimes that word is used, even in the New Testament, by the Jews themselves to speak of their own gathering in the religious community. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the word ecclesia was often used to translate the Hebrew word that referred to the gathering of Israelites at the tabernacle or the temple. So when the New Testament writers use the word ecclesia, they primarily use it to refer to an assembly or to a gathering. And that's the, the point that I really want to emphasize here at this moment. At the heart of that word ecclesia, at the heart of the church's identity, is its corporateness. A church is inherently corporate. And to be a Christian necessarily requires gathering with the church. Now, I'm not saying that attending a church makes you a Christian, right? Just simply coming to church, simply being even a member of a church does not make you a Christian. Only faith alone, in Christ alone, by His grace alone, makes you a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you will be part of a local church. You will gather with the church. The New Testament has no category for a Christian disconnected from the local church. In fact, I believe if even the Apostle Paul were here, or the Apostle Peter were here, and you said to him, you know, I'm a Christian, but I don't meet with a church. I think they would look at you like you were from another planet. There's, there's no category for that. In fact, I even wonder, I think that they would probably even suggest that you might not even be a Christian if you say that you are a Christian but are disconnected from a local church. So when we talk about the church, we talk about the ecclesia, we need to keep at the forefront of our minds the corporate nature of the church. The church is an assembly. It's a gathering. It's a congregation. It's a meeting together. And that raises a number of questions that we'll try to answer again in more detail over the next couple of months. But for now, let's just try to ask ourselves some basic questions about the church, and four in particular, okay? Who, why, when, and where? Those are the four questions I'm going to try to address in this message. So question one, who? Who assembles as a church? Who assembles as a church? And the simple answer is those who have repented of their sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, if you've joined us for worship this morning and you're not a Christian, 
Let me just say up front, we are happy that you are here. We're glad, we're thrilled that you are here this morning to be participate with us in worship and singing these great songs of praise to God and hearing His Word and fellowshipping together. But I don't want you to be under the delusion that you are part of our church. We would love for you to come back every Sunday. We'd love for you to come participate in everything that we do as a church. But a person can only be a a, only person, a person can only be part of the church if they are trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. And just again to be upfront, that is what we hope for you. We are hoping and praying that you'll be converted, you'll hear the gospel, you'll learn of the great grace of God manifested through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You'll see that He did that for you so that you could be cleansed of your sins and be brought into a new relationship with Him, that you will come to that place, that you will put your faith and trust in Christ, you'll turn away from your sins, and that you will receive His glorious salvation and then become a part of our church. That's what we're hoping and praying for you. But until that happens, we encourage you to be a part of us and join us in what we're doing, but you're not properly considered a part of the church. You must trust in Christ to be properly included in the assembly. So the true assembly, the true gathering of the church, is really those who acknowledge Jesus as Lord and bow their knee to Him in faith. Now what do we learn about those people? What do we learn about those who have turned from their sins and trusted in Christ? The New Testament uses a a number of terms to identify these people who belong to a church. Let me just give you a couple, well, four of them, okay? Briefly give you four Descriptions, identity markers, names for those who have turned from their sins, who've trusted in Christ, and who are part of a local church. So, for example, the first one is the word disciple. Constituents of the church are called disciples, and particularly we're called disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, we know from the Gospels that when Jesus ministered on earth, he called disciples to follow him. And that word disciple just simply means student, a student. The disciples of Jesus, then, are in the most literal sense, students of Jesus. Jesus intended to teach his disciples doctrine, truth, Christian living. He intended to teach them so that they might learn from him. And what do they learn? Well, they learn about how to enter into the kingdom of God. They learn about the gospel. They learn about what faith is. They learn about the truth that God has given to His people. They learn about how to live as citizens in His kingdom. As we look at that way of life that Christians are to exhibit, that disciples of Jesus are to exhibit, we see that emulated, lived out in Jesus Himself. And so to say it another way, disciples, the disciples of Jesus, the first disciples of Jesus, were to learn how to imitate Jesus so that their lives would look like Him. All then who believe in Christ, not just simply those in the first century, not just simply his first disciples, all who follow Jesus, all who believe in him, all who submit to him as Lord are properly called disciples. Even today, right now, us in this room, Christians in Tallahassee, Florida in the 21st century, we are still learning from Jesus. We are learning from Jesus as we study God's word together. We're learning from Jesus as we open up the Bible and as we share what is this truth that God has given to us and studying it so we might know who He is. And as the Holy Spirit takes that truth and applies it to our lives, then we live out those truths that we learn from Him. 
because we don't get it all at one time, because we are error-prone, because we are sinners, because we're forgetful, because we're tempted, we need to continue to submit ourselves over and over again to Jesus, to learning from Jesus, to learning what we ought to believe, to obeying his commands, to imitating his life. The church is the assembly of Jesus' disciples. A second term that the New Testament rarely uses, only used about three or four times in the New Testament, but the term that we commonly use today is very similar to the word disciple, is the word Christian. Acts chapter 11, verse 26 says, And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. And the word Christian literally means little Christ. The first Christians picked up that name because they were known for their imitation of Christ. They were known for their Christian character. Their detractors meant it to be a derogatory term, but early Christians embraced it as a badge of honor. How great would it be to be known as a little Christ? To be known for your imitation of Jesus, that your life parallels His life. As we're living out our daily lives, that our, our lives resemble the life of Jesus. And so the church is an assembly of Christians. People who claim to follow Jesus and then give evidence of it in their lives. A third term that's used in the New Testament is the word elect. The word elect, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, Paul opens that letter and says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. He's referring there to Christians as God's elect. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, as God's elect ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We are, as God's people, the ones that he has chosen for himself. And the word he let there indicates God's choosing, God's calling of his people for salvation. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because we've all sinned, we're all worthy of God's judgment for those sins. We deserve condemnation. We deserve God's eternal wrath. And so purely by his grace, even before time began, God chose to save some of these sinful human beings for himself. He chose them. He set them aside to be his people. He sent his son to die for their sins. And in the right time, as the gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit has taken the preached word and he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are his elect. And so the church is an assembly of God's elect, those whom God has saved by his grace through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, and called to salvation by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. The last term I'll highlight here to identify those who compose the church is the word saints. Saints. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who live, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The word saint literally means holy ones. Holy ones. It refers to God's sanctifying work in our lives. In other words, 
through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, God has sanctified us. He has made us holy. He has washed away our sins. He has given us new life in Jesus Christ. And through the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit, God brings our lives, our sanctified lives, into line with His own holy character. And so Christians, members of the church, part of the church, is to reflect God's holy character in their lives. This is a wonderful thing that God has done for us. He has sanctified us. He has made us holy. He has called us. He has equipped, he has equipped us and empowered us to live in a holy way that reflects His character. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter begins to identify this gathering of God's people. He says, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, excuse me, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God has made us holy. First Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, Peter exhorts the church. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So the church is an assembly of saints. It's an assembly of people whom God has made holy through the blood of Christ and then who work out their holiness in community with one another. Now, there are other terms that we could use, but I'm just going to stop there with those four. We'll probably come across some other terms through our study of the church, but these four are sufficient for now for giving us an overview of who belongs, who gathers together as a church. That leads us then to the second question. Why? Why do these people, we call them disciples, Christians, the elect, saints, why do these people gather together as a church? And we could probably go on and on. I'm going to give you four basic reasons now, and I'm sure we will unfold this more and more over the next many weeks that we look at this. So first, why does the church gather? Because there is the expectation that the church will gather. There is the expectation that the church, the church meets because God expects us to meet. There is an assumption already in the New Testament that the church assembles together. That's already taken for granted. The church will gather. It's just assumed that the church gathers together. We know from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, that the church assembled together daily for scriptural teaching, for prayer, for worship, and for fellowship. There was just that expectation that they would gather each day for those purposes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, and also chapter 11, verses 17 and 18, Paul writes to the Corinthians, when you are assembled or when you come together, setting out the assumption and the expectation that the church was already gathering together and that they would continue to gather together on a regular basis as a church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, Paul writes, Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, how can Paul claim and exhort the church to do this unless they actually meet together and do it? How can Paul tell the church, this is what you should be doing, unless he assumes that they're going to be gathering together and that they should be doing these things anyway? In fact, the expectation to gather was so clear that the writer of Hebrews exhorts those who have neglected to meet together on a regular basis 
with the church. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. And let us then consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the expectation to meet together is born out of the fact that God has called us to be his people. He has joined us to one another so that we might, we might live together and that he might live with us. God has called us and has drawn us together to be his people and expects us to gather together so that he might commune with us and dwell among his people, doing his good and sovereign work in our lives. He has called us together for this purpose. Why would a person become a Christian if he or she won't meet together with God's people? So the first reason, there's that expectation, there's that assumption that God's people will meet together as a church. Secondly, why do we gather as a church? Well, the church gathers to fellowship. The church is a gathering of fellows. It's an association of fellows. It's an assembly of fellows. We don't use that word fellows much anymore, right? I don't usually go alongside, hey, hey, Tim, my fellow, right? What words would we use? Or a comrade, right? A partner, a companion. If you were in Australia, a mate, right? That's my mate, right? That Australian accent and all. But that person's my mate, right? A bud, special friend. And I have daughters. In the words of Anne of Green Gables, a bosom friend, right? A friend that is closer than than, than even a sibling, right? A true friend who really knows you, you share your heart with you, you live your life with. That's what the word fellow entails. These are the people that we share our lives with. If our connection to others is the closest possible connection that any people on earth can share, that's fellowship in the gospel, then doesn't it make sense that we would gather together together as fellows in the church to share in that fellowship. And when we gather together to fellowship, what are we doing? We're living out the one another's of the New Testament, the one another commands of the New Testament. You just do a concordance search or blue letter Bible or whatever and put in one another and define your terms to the New Testament and see all the things that God encourages his people to do, to love one another and serve one another and encourage one another and pray for one another. In our assembly, we are doing these things. We are loving one another. We are serving one another. We are encouraging one another. We are comforting one another. We are praying for one another so that we are strengthened and edified as we continue on that path of spiritual maturity. The church gathers to fellowship. Third, the church assembles together to remember the gospel. The church assembles together to remember the gospel. We are a forgetful people. And one of the things that continues to go on in our lives is that we battle against the vestiges of the sinful nature. We're also beaten up by the trials and temptations and persecutions that are brought on by the world. And so we need to remember our great salvation. We need to remember what God has done for us in Christ. We need to remember whose we are and what he has promised to us. We need to be strengthened to crucify the flesh, to fight against temptation, and to endure hardships. We need to be reminded of the hope of heaven. And so, what do we do? 
We gather together as the church to hear the gospel, to sing the gospel, to pray the gospel, to taste the gospel, to share in the fellowship of the gospel again and again and again. For it is the gospel that is the hope of our salvation. How encouraging it is to us to hear. One of the things, one of my favorite parts of church is hearing the church sing. I love it that I can hear your voices singing the gospel because it's a reminder to me that I'm not alone in this. I'm not alone in the struggles and the trials of life. I'm not alone in the fact that I am weak in faith at many times. That there are other brothers and sisters who are enduring the same thing and seeing these great truths to remind me to continue to endure in that way. How encouraging it is to remember the gospel, to celebrate the gospel, to love the gospel. We need to remember the gospel And so we gather together to remember the gospel. Fourth, we gather as a church as an embassy of the kingdom of God. We gather together as a church as an embassy of the kingdom of God. The church is the outpost of God's kingdom in this rebellious world. We're a reminder to the world of God's presence, of God's kingdom, that it is coming. That there is a need for repentance and faith. And so as we gather together as a church, even though outside sinful people are raging against God and his rule over them, we are reflecting the glorious rule of Christ's kingship over us. When we gather as a church, Christ is king. He is ruling and reigning over us. And we are submitting ourselves to him. And we're experiencing the fullness of his benefits, the benefits that his rule brings to us. And we especially experience those benefits in our shared life together. And so the church becomes an embassy of the kingdom. We are the king's representatives in a foreign land. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 to 16, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but stand on, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So these are just a few of the reasons why we gather together as a church. That brings us then to our third question. When? When does a church gather? The New Testament doesn't give us a schedule for when the church should gather or give us hard and fast rules for how often the church should gather. We see some examples in the Old Testament or the New Testament of how the early Christians gathered. In the earliest days after Pentecost, the church gathered daily. In Acts chapter 2, verses 46 to 47, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they met daily. I don't know, that, that's Luke's summary statement of what the church looked like in the earliest days after Pentecost. What we do know also is that the churches, there are churches at least, at the very least, the very basic minimum, what we can tell from Acts and the Epistles, is that they at least met on Sunday the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, to commemorate Christ's resurrection from the dead. In fact, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 
gives us an indication of that. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, they had come together, to, probably referring to communion, and the things that go with that, the scriptural teaching, the prayer, fellowship, all those things are happening. They do it on the first day of the week. So we ought not to impose a law where there is no law. But I think the general conclusion that we can draw from the New Testament is that the church met together regularly. If we can use a word to describe our own sense of how often, when we should meet, we can use the word regularly. If the church is God's plan for our spiritual lives and maturity, and if God has called us and purposed us to meet together as a body, shouldn't we be more prone to gather with the church than not? As a church, our goal in meeting together is not to create more busyness, is not to entertain ourselves. We want to be purposeful in what we do in our times of gathering. We want to function like a New Testament church. My prayer constantly for the church is that we would appear to be like the church in the New Testament, that we would emulate them, that we would follow their example, that we would submit ourselves to what God has revealed to us in his word. We want to function like a New Testament church ought to function. Teaching and praying, discipling and fellowshipping together, worshiping and serving, encouraging and comforting. And so to that end, we have set aside time where we encourage our members to meet together for these purposes. And I want to encourage you with whatever pastoral influence I have in your life to participate with the body in these times of meeting and what are those for this church? Well, here's one right now, right? Sunday morning worship service. I would strongly exhort you to make your participation and your presence here to be non-negotiable. Prioritize it over other responsibilities, invitations, and opportunities. Of course, there will be exceptions, right? There will be illnesses. There will be vacations. There will be work emergencies. There will be unusual life circumstances out of our control. But I would say realize that those are the exceptions that demonstrate the rule, that normalize the rule. That more often than not, that what I ought to do on Sunday morning, unless something providential occurs, is that I should gather with God's people here. And so I would just encourage you and challenge you, again, with whatever pastoral influence I have in your life, to make this time non-negotiable so that we can gather and do what the church, what the scripture says the church ought to be and do. But secondly, I would really encourage you to participate in our midweek prayer service. Man, it's been a blessing. I know that, I know that COVID really threw a lot of us off our game, but one of the things we had to do by necessity was to meet together, came in the sanctuary and spread out. And it's been just a tremendous blessing to be able to gather on what we've now got pizza involved or food involved on 6.30. Thank you, Adam and Rachel, for organizing that. We can gather together for half an hour. We can eat. We can fellowship. And we can come in here and we can sing the truths of the gospel together, right? Remembering those truths of the gospel. We can hear a little devotion. Well, not little. We can hear a devotion from God's word. We can pray together and for one another and really encourage one another. I don't know about you, but I get beat up during the week. I struggle with temptation. I fall short of God's glory Monday and Tuesday, right? Remember there was one time, I don't mean to point Adam out, but remember that time you fell down the stairs? I remember you came into church and used it as an illustration. You're like, that feels like my spiritual life, right? I feel like Sunday is so great. I'm on a high. Monday morning I go to work and I trip down the stairs and I 
falling all over the place and hurting myself. And yet, what's, I, have, I don't have to wait till Sunday to be encouraged and to be, to be strengthened and to be motivated and to be loved upon. can do that on Wednesday night. What a great opportunity it is for us to gather together and be able to do the things that the, the New Testament encourages us to do and to be as a church. Third, I would encourage you to participate in a Bible study. Again, as Adam mentioned this morning on the announcements, some meet every week, some meet every other week. We encourage you to be a part of that on a smaller scale as we do the same things that we would do in church, that we, we study the Word together, we in fellowship together, we pray together, we encourage each other in those times. So I would definitely encourage you that if you're not a part of one of those Bible studies, I know some are, are, are back in it already, some are getting back online, find out what those are and be a part of those. And, and, and be able, to, again, to allow what God has, in, has, has purposed for us as a church to be at work, not only among us, but even in your own personal life. And then fourth, I would encourage you to participate in the events our elders schedule for the church calendar. So there are times we set aside for special purposes, like a men's breakfast, right? We've done that before. And, and a baptismal service we had recently, just a couple of months ago. And, and, and work days from time to time. There are things that, that we do, again, not to create more busyness for you, not just to meet together for the sake of meeting together, but those purposeful times when we come together and, and we realize that, that God wants us to be a healthy, vibrant, faithful church. And these times are meant to encourage that. These times are meant to encourage your own personal walk with the Lord. They're meant to edify you personally, just as they're meant to edify the church corporately. And so I hope that helps us understand what it might mean for a church to meet regularly. Again, there's no intention here to be legalistic, just an attempt to faithfully align ourselves with the picture of the church that we see in the New Testament. So when does a church gather? Again, it gathers regularly. And that brings us then to our fourth and final question, where? Where does a church meet? And again, the New Testament doesn't specify where churches meet, just that they do meet. In the days after Pentecost, we see the church met both in the temple courts, where the Jews typically gathered together for worship, and in private homes. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47 says, And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. As the gospel spread out into the Gentile world, the larger, more comfortable homes of wealthier church members became the primary setting for church meetings, church gatherings. In Philemon, verses 1 and 2, Paul sends greetings to Philemon, his family, and the church in your house, he says. Churches did not buy property and meet in special buildings, their own buildings, until the 4th century when Constantine decriminalized Christianity and the meeting of churches. So I say all that to say that it doesn't, it's far less important where a church meets than the fact that it does gather together to meet. And the regular meeting of the local church is crucially important. Now, theologians will sometimes distinguish between what's called the visible church and the invisible church, and between the local church and the universal church. The visible church is the church that you can see. Those of us here who have responded in faith to the gospel, 
who are following Christ, who have committed ourselves to one another here in this local body. We are the visible church. The invisible church is the church you can't see. That's the one that includes true Christians from every place and every time. This is the church that will only come together in fullness at the end of the age. But the way that we know that there is an invisible church is because of the visible church that meets. The visible church makes the invisible known. Likewise, the local church is the gathering of believers in particular, in a particular local body. So Trinity Community Church is a local church. If you're a member, you are a part of this church, the church that meets here in this place. The universal church is the body of all Christians in every place and every generation. But again, the only way that we know that there is even a universal church is because the local church exists. Each local church is a representation of the one holy Catholic apostolic church. So when a Christian joins a local church, he is making a commitment to that particular body. And so we commit ourselves, or more properly, we covenant ourselves to one another, to this local church. We don't float around from church to church. Well, I like the sermon series the pastor's doing at church A, and then when that's over, I'm going to go see what the pastor's doing at church B down the road, right? We don't use multiple local, local churches as the smorgasbord for our personal Christian experience. I'll do prayer group at church A, and I'll do the Bible study at church B, and I'll worship at church C, and I'll do the mission products at church D. Now, again, I'm not saying that we silo ourselves off from the larger Christian community. There are times that churches can serve one another. We can partner together in special events or concerning special issues or emphases. But what I am saying is that when you join a local church, you devote yourself to gathering with and participating in the life of that body. You come to know those you gather with. And you allow yourself to be known by those you gather with. You obey the one another commands of the New Testament together. You submit your life to the authority of the elders of that church. You covenant yourself. It's a word I'll be using later on down the line. You covenant yourself to that assembly. So where does the church meet? Well, for us, and that's what I'm preaching to you guys, for us, that means it's here. This local church, Trinity Community Church. Now, I have much more to say. I'm not going to say it today. I'm going to spread it out. But I will say that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to say. And if that's just the tip, then imagine how enormous the rest of the iceberg the doctrine of the local church, the doctrine of the church is woven into the very fabric of the New Testament. This isn't something trivial. We ought not to be cavalier about this. It is an essential matter. It is a point of, of, of emphasis. It is a necessary feature. And I'm excited to delve into this theological subject for the next couple of months. I love ecclesiology. I wrote my systematic theology research paper on this doctrine. It is a glorious and wonderful doctrine. But above all, I hope that throughout this study, the Holy Spirit will do three things among us. I pray that first, that he will affirm and deepen our knowledge, our doctrinal knowledge of the church. Secondly, I pray that he will stir up and inflame our passion for the church, and particularly this church, our church body. 
And third, I would pray that he would renew and reinvigorate our commitment to the church. And again, this particular church. And especially that he would reinvigorate and renew our commitment concerning our corporate functioning together and also our individual service. Adam alluded to that in the announcements. I believe next week we'll start having sign-up sheets available for how you can use your gifts and your passions and your uh, time commitments to be able to serve us in a way that allows us to be a fully healthy, functioning, vibrant church for the glory of God. But I'll leave with this. The church is a means of grace. The church is a means of grace. God uses the church to cause His grace to flourish in our lives. And so I would ask you to join me. Would you pray for these next couple... I don't know how long it's going to be. I haven't charted it out yet. But it's going to probably be at least eight or nine weeks. Would you join me in praying for these next couple of months as we study together about the church that God's grace would flourish in us and that we would display God's glory to one another and to the world. Would you pray those three things that I mentioned a moment ago, that we would be deepened and affirmed in our doctrinal knowledge of the church, that you would pray that we would be stirred up and inflamed in our passions for the church and for this church, and would you pray that God would renew and reinvigorate our commitment to the church, this church, especially as it regards how we live as a church, and how I contribute to the church. May God help us in this. May he give us grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, for what it teaches us. We know that we can know nothing except that you reveal it to us. Your word is your mind. It conveys your will about what we ought to believe and what we ought to do. And we're thankful, Lord, that in the New Testament you have revealed to us this blessing, this gift, this means of grace that we call the church. That we don't live as Lone Ranger Christians, Lord. But that we are living together in this community, this gathering, so that you might accomplish your purposes in our lives and in the world through us. Lord, I pray we wouldn't be trivial about this. I pray we wouldn't be cavalier. In fact, to meditate upon how you have purposed the church and designed the church and intend to use the church, it's a little overwhelming. We want to be in line with what your word says. We want you to accomplish what you have promised. And that means a commitment from us. It means a covenant from us. It means a sacrifice from us. We pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to do what you have said you would do and that it would be a true blessing in our lives and a blessing in the lives of this church as well as those in the world. We love you, Lord, and we thank you again for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.